Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, the podcast to listen if you wish to get inspired by how technologies are healing healthcare globally. I am your host, Tiasha Zaitz. Did you know that VR is used in medicine for acute and chronic pain, stroke and traumatic brain injury, drug and alcohol abuse, mild cognitive impairment, anger management, learning disabilities, neurocognitive disorders, PTSD, grief counseling, and more. With the decrease in price, VR is getting mainstream. The technology giants such as Facebook and Samsung are making huge investments and according to Statista, 12.4 million units will be shipped worldwide in 2018 and more than five times as much in four years in 2022. In the previous episode, I talked to Dr. Albert Skiprizo from the UCS Institute for Creative Technologies, and today we're continuing on the topic with Dr. Walter Greenleaf, an expert some call the father of VR in medicine. He started his research in 1984. I visited Dr. Greenleaf in Stanford, and since it was a nice sunny day, we started the discussion during a walk around the campus until we found the perfect bench to sit on and discuss medical potentials of VR, its questions and potential consequences on society in a broader sense. Enjoy the conversation. You've been in the field uh, of VR since its beginning. Some even say you're amongst the founders of the field. Can you tell me a bit more about the beginnings and how far we've come? Sure. Well, uh, for one thing, it's very exciting for me to see that it is finally taking off in terms of VR being available for so many uses and so many exciting tools and display systems and motion measurement systems, but it's been based on a foundation of research that's gone on for decades. When I first got involved, uh, the head-mount displays we used were very expensive, costing like $70,000 each or more, and the computers cost half a million dollars or more. And the results were pretty simplistic, as you can imagine. The graphics were very crude, the latencies were very long. But you know what? We were still able to do some research and figure out where VR could be helpful and where maybe not so helpful. And so for me, it's very exciting to see that we have that foundation of learnings that we can build upon now. I can understand some of the applications of VR, such as using it um, instead of exposure therapy for um, uh, easier dealing or treatment of trauma. But uh, um, I saw in your CV that um, applications are also mentioned for uh, autism. That's one. And the other one uh, is addiction. What do we know happens in the brain in terms of brain patterns during a VR session? Well, sure. But let me add to your list of where VR has been shown to be effective. We've had successful studies showing the value of VR for helping with um, addictions, uh, cognitive aging. You mentioned autism and Asperger's. We've also successfully used it to help with uh, issues such as anxiety and depression. 
stroke rehabilitation, traumatic brain injury is a big one. Also used for training, for training clinicians how to interact with the patient or for patients to understand um, a clinical procedure. So there's a pretty, and better assessments. So there's a pretty large spectrum of ways it's been used, and we'll, those will only grow. But your question was what's going on in the brain? One of the powers of virtual environments are that they can be very evocative emotionally. You've probably seen all the demos where people, to show the power of VR, they'll have people stand on a, take a virtual elevator up to a high spot and step out onto a plank. Sort of a standard demonstration to get people immersed and show how engaging a virtual environment could be. But one of the points of that is that we can evoke a cognitive state. And if you can evoke a cognitive state, then you can teach people the skills to manage that cognitive state. Someone who might have social phobia, we can have them practice going to a party or going into a crowded room or going to a movie theater and allow them to practice social skills, like how to you know, have small talk with someone or how to get to make a friend. For someone who's on the autism spectrum, we can exaggerate the facial expressions so they can recognize the nonverbal clues that the people they're talking to are providing and learn to recognize them, and we can gradually make it more and more realistic, but they can learn it basically at a simple spot. Uh, I guess another example of where VR is interacting with neuroscience and the neuroscience behind of why it's so powerful is the fact that it's so engaging we can leverage the brain's reward systems. Yeah, that, that's actually what I really wanted to know. Like the reward system, uh, how do you change the behavioral patterns with VR? Well, for example, with helping with someone with addictions, it's very similar to what we do with exposure therapy for, for post-traumatic stress, is we place someone in a situation... We use the virtual environments to induce a craving, and then we teach them the skills, the cognitive skills, to handle and manage that craving and to resist peer pressure, social peer pressure. So we might, for example, have a virtual party scene or a virtual bar scene, and instead of asking the patient to imagine that they're at a bar and their friends are putting pressure on them to have a drink, we can have them be in a virtual bar, get that environment evoked in their brain, activate the cravings, and then teach them how to manage themselves during that time. How long do these therapies last? Uh, the reason I'm asking this is also because um, um, what you're mentioning is something that requires willpower until you change your behavior patterns. And you know, there's uh, also books that will tell you that um, you need to change the environment if you want to have a successful outcome because if in today's world with so uh, many uh, nudges around us, if we have to use willpower for everything, then in the end you don't use it. It does take practice. It does take time. But if we're just using someone's imagination to evoke the, and develop the skill set they need to have, they're not making any progress at all. So in terms of your general question of how long does it take, it takes less time than just using standard imaginative therapy. In some cases, much less. Uh, treating fear of flying, for example. Some people can go to a, a clinic 
when they're used using imaginative therapy to in their own mind practice getting on the airplane and feeling calm it doesn't help at all some people it does help but it may take many sessions whereas if we use the virtual environment to help evoke that cognitive state and teach them the skills to manage that cognitive state the results can be faster the therapist can literally go there well figuratively go there with the patient and practice how to manage their fears and cope with the fear of being at the airport or the fear of getting on an airplane so it it is it all depends on what you're treating but it can be done faster with the power of a virtual environment to help as a tool to enable the clinicians to do their work maybe we can return to the question of what happens in the brain in terms of the brain patterns uh during a VR session and i already talked to um dr rizzo and he mentioned that there you don't really have much uh research not that not a lot of research has been done on that for example the same way as you would do it for uh the changes in activity in the brain regions uh, in psychedelic treatments well that's true um because VR technology is relatively new at least in its current configuration we haven't had the time to do a lot of uh research uh but there are some studies and you know for example here at Stanford we're doing a study where we're looking at um patients who 400 patients who are getting treated for depression and weight management issues over a multi-year period and we're doing brain imaging along with other assessments as to their cognitive function as they learn to manage their depression and manage their weight and we're using virtual environments to challenge their systems uh, to see how well they're managing to learn to control their mood and how to control their their weight impulses so that's one study where we're doing fmri imaging and also using vr as an evocative environment but there's some that are you know a little bit uh, you know more specific too for example we're using fnears technology there's a group at the at uh, the Stanford psychiatry department that's measuring with fnears uh frontal um uh, lobe activity in the brain and using vr to uh challenge children who have attention deficit disorder in teaching them how to focus their attention and then using the fnears technology to um ch- see what changes in the brain as they learn those skills the virtual environments are the assessment platform for that and the intervention platform so it's used both to measure their um their ability to stay focused on a task and then also to teach them those skills all the clinical applications that are already known for vr how much are they already a part of the clinical practice and how much are they only in the research phase it's changing uh we have a clinic here at stanford where we use virtual environments to help uh, uh people with some uh issues such as uh uh chronic pain or acute pain we also use it to help uh people who have phantom limb issues um we've used it for some uh psychiatric disorders so, and there are other clinics throughout the throughout the country that have been well throughout the world have been using it uh as intervention but most of those have been somehow connected to teaching hospitals or academic research centers so it the vr applications of medicine haven't quite crossed over to the the usual and customary part of medicine part of that is that vr technology is still 
you know, somewhat expensive. Um, uh, it's more expensive than a patient would typically, well, at least the high-end VR systems, the ones that run on a computer. Uh, the low-end ones that run on your cell phone can be used uh, therapeutically, but they're not quite there yet in terms of speed or resolution. So, When it comes to therapy, uh, it is true that the equipment uh, has become cheaper by today. However, uh, we are talking about application of VR therapy for serious uh, disorders, um, uh, yeah, mental illness, uh, anxiety, PTSD. And the key thing in these therapies is the therapist. So if we consider VR as a tool that could potentially uh, make treatment more more affordable, how much more affordable can it get when the therapist is still needed in the process? Very good question. Well, some things can be done using VR that the therapist is supervising the process. Let me use the example of stroke rehabilitation. During the acute phase of the uh, recovery from a stroke, the clinician can work with a patient in the hospital to guide them to do some exercises that help them recover function. However, after that acute phase, they're sent home, but they still have work to do, some exercises they have to do. And these exercises are frustrating. They're sometimes painful. They're boring. But we can use virtual environments at home to uh, to guide the patient, maybe make it a game, to do their home exercises. And there are commercial companies uh, Ten or more that are coming up with home therapy systems for uh, stroke rehabilitation and traumatic brain injury rehabilitation and physical rehabilitation from a physical injury. And those systems don't require the, the therapist to be with the patient. They're used perhaps sometimes in a telemedicine manner where the therapist periodically reviews the progress of the patient, maybe gives them some adjustments to the protocol and feedback. But by and large, they're magnifying the therapist and freeing them up. And the value here is that they're they're making it more interesting, more engaging for the patient, but also they're sending data back to the clinic so the clinic can refine its protocols and adjust them both for the individual and also for you know their therapy protocols in general. Yeah, I guess if you if you train the patient properly, you can um have less sessions. That's right. Um, for example, somebody might plateau on their rehabilitation and you need to change the protocol. But if you don't have the data that they've plateaued, they're still doing the same thing. Or often it's confusing what to do and they might be shoulder, holding their shoulder the wrong way. If we're using the virtual environment to measure what they're doing, give them feedback on how to do it the right way, then they'll get better results. Uh, they won't plateau uh, and can achieve a, a better result. The industry is going to find a lot of applications of VR, I'm sure, especially with all the consumer products and apps already uh, popping up that require nothing but a smartphone and then you can make a VR uh, headset. One question that did came to my mind was that, for example, anxiety and meditation are also two examples of uh, the VR use. At the moment, uh, relaxation apps work in a way that you have to close your eyes and somebody may guide you, but you have to use your imagination to get into this uh, imaginary uh, place where, where that relaxes you, may it be the beach or the meadow, whatever. But if you already have a VR scene, what do you think that means in terms of creativity of an individual? You know, it's like if if you watch a movie first and then you go read a book and then you have to use much less imagination because all the setup is already there. Well, 
Once again, you've asked a good question. And here's how I see it. The virtual environments can be used to teach a skill. And then once you've mastered the skill, you may or may not need to use the virtual environment. Mindfulness is a good example. Uh, it's People often find it hard to sit and relax and learn mindfulness skills. Uh, but with the virtual environment, we can block out the outside world. We can take them to a calmer, quieter place. And then they can learn the mood regulation, emotional regulation skills they need, and the mindfulness skills. Now they may to elect later to keep returning to that scene to uh, still use it to help them relax, or they may take those skills with them to another place and use them uh, on demand, but in that case, use their imagination. So I, I don't think the virtual environments take the place of the clinician. I don't think they take the place of what the patient needs to do for work. I, I think they augment it. They, uh, they, engage you cognitively, and they give new tools for the clinician to use or new tools for the It's like a, a new line of therapy. Before it was only pharmaceuticals, now we have other tools as well, and different patients respond to different means. That's correct, but let me also point out another possibility. It doesn't have to be either or. We can do combination therapy where we combine the virtual environments with a pharmaceutical. For example, if somebody's dealing with depression or dealing with an anxiety disorder or going through um, uh, neurorehabilitation, there's no reason why the pharmaceuticals can't be used synergistically. And the, the medication, for example, might change your brain chemistry, but we also change brain chemistry with our cognitive processes and our behavior. So we can magnify the effects of the pharmaceuticals. I think the other thing to keep in mind is that the virtual environments can do a good job of um, assessing progress. One of the problems with the medications we have, particularly in the field of of mental health and behavioral medicine, is that we don't we use sub self report and maybe observation as our metrics. With the virtual environments, we can capture behavior and we can see if the medication is working the right way, and maybe also identify different subpopulations that one medication might be more effective than another. So uh, virtual environments don't take the place of the pharmaceuticals. They can teach, they can complement the pharmaceuticals. In some cases, they can be used on their own as an intervention, but in some cases, they can be used in combination with a pharmaceutical intervention. How much interest have you seen for the VR so far from other industries in the medical field, for example, pharma? Uh, there's several pharma companies that have expressed great interest in using uh, VR technology. Some are developing um, interventions internally that they will be using in combination with their pharmaceuticals, and others are looking into it to be used uh, um, to work with outside development groups to to uh, develop them. And, and keep in mind, it's not just interventions. Uh, VR can also be used for patient education. So... There's been a number of examples of where pharmaceutical companies have, and medical device companies too, have paid to develop virtual environments that are used uh, at trade shows or for people to download and use at home to have to see what it's like uh, to have a family member who has um, a dementia or to experience what it's like to have a migraine or to learn about uh, a heart condition. So virtual environments can be used to uh, educate as well as to assess and to intervene. I actually just remember that um, when I started working for uh, the 
a medical uh, magazine uh, before my uh, new job. Um, one of my first uh, assignments was to attend a pulmonology congress in Munich. Uh, so uh, as a clinician, you know how, how deeply specific these kind of congresses are. But at each of these congresses, you also have an exhibition trade show from, from the pharma industry. And that's where I actually got in touch with uh, a virtual reality first time because um, you had HoloLens, you had Google Glass, you had uh, uh, simulators that were uh, presenting how different drugs work. Exactly. So that that's a good example for education. And then I think uh, as the medical device and the pharmaceutical industry learn more about the power of this technology, they'll start combining it with some of their interventions. I, I've already seen a few medical device companies look to say, how can we um, we have a complex device. We have a uh, a new system, for example, to help someone who is diabetic uh, manage their insulin, but it's complex. And can we teach them how to handle different scenarios, maybe when there's an alarm or a failure or a problem, um, and using VR to train the, the not just the clinicians on how to use a, a new medical device, but also the patients on how to use uh, a new device. Um, you know, the other thing I, I think we should talk about is how VR can be used to help prevent a problem um, uh, in the field of health and wellness. Um, yeah, one of the one of the more even in, not in health and uh, wellness, like one of the more uh, prevalent, I think, medical examples are to show the diabetic uh, people how they will see if they get diabetic retinopathy. So if they get blind, because, sure. which you can get with diabetes. Sure. Absolutely. And I'll tell you about, we're right now about 50 meters away from the Stanford Virtual Human Interaction Lab. And at that lab, some of the research has shown the power of using the an avatar of your future self to shift behavior. What we've done is we've taken um, uh, students in this case, and we've put them in a virtual environment where they meet their future self. We've scanned in their face and we mapped it to a virtual avatar and we age progressed it. And then we show them the consequences of certain decisions. Um, in one study, we actually gave the students some money. And some of the students, we just said, use the money for whatever you want. Just tell us how you're using it. In other cases, we said, you can use the money however you want, but here's your future self who's going to talk about saving for retirement and why that's important. And it changes your behavior to see your future self. And the same principle has been applied to weight management, to um, – how to uh, drug abuse and addictions. Uh, it's been used to show, help people exercise. One of the problems we have with changing our behavior is we don't see the consequences right away. It might take months to see the effect of exercising more. But if you see it immediately, if we have your avatar look skinnier based on doing a little bit of exercise, it motivates you and you can get, you know, and again, we're leveraging the mirror neuron systems of the brain in that case. Yeah, that's a really important point because one of the key problems we have with chronic patients and adherence to drugs is uh, the absence of immediate gratification where you are delaying uh, potential complications. But, you know, when, when a chronic disease becomes part of your everyday life, you just don't want to deal with it anymore, which also can sometimes mean that just because you feel better, you stop taking your drugs. Uh, let me tell you another project we did um, on the side of um, preventative medicine here at the Stanford Children's Hospital. Uh, this is called Project Braveheart. And this was done with the pediatric cardiology department. 
there's children who are scheduled for a cardiac procedure, and they know weeks in advance the day of their appointment, and they, they stress out about it. They, they In many ways, they know what's going to be the scariest and worst day of their life in advance. So what we did is we captured 360 video of the whole patient journey, starting in the parking lot, going to the check-in desk, waiting in the waiting room, going into the prep room, going into the operating room, coming out of the operating room and going to the recovery room. And here's the key point is we green screened in other kids who'd had the procedure before to serve as guides. And they said, here's what's going to happen here. And this is going to feel a little cold, but you can manage it. And then we snuck in some mindfulness training, uh, uh, games to teach them um, mood management skills and diaphragmatic breathing uh, to help them get ready for that for that day. Uh, we haven't, we, it's a double blind study, so we haven't had a chance to review all the data yet. But th- I've already been told that several kids who otherwise would not do the procedure because it was too scary for them have, have gone ahead and done the procedure after doing the virtual tour. So in that sense, it was a preventative uh, medicine to prevent uh, stress. In your description for South by Southwest, um, the word said that you recently served as a director for the Mind Division at the Center on Longevity here at Stanford. Does that mean that you're not um, ahead of that division anymore? Uh, no, that was um, a project I did for about a year. Uh, I was very interested in the issues of cognitive aging and uh how uh, our culture is or is not ready for the coming crisis of having so many elderly uh, people and not as many younger caregivers and family members as we used to have in the past. We're living a lot longer, and um, as we live longer, uh, the statistics uh, for neurodegenerative disease are not favorable. Uh, in our 80s and 90s, two out of every seven of us right now with the current uh, treatment protocols that we have will have uh, Alzheimer's or another neurodegenerative disease. So I got very concerned about that issue. But um, the VR field started taking off, and I decided that I was best uh, um, out there helping some of the startups and the medical device and pharmaceutical companies uh, embrace this new technology. So I still do uh, some basic research here at Stanford. I'm still part of the Virtual Human Interaction Lab and s- help with some of the clinics here. But most of my work out right now is out there in the in the either validation area, validating some of the new technology that's coming out, or working with some of the startups to help them understand how to do it the right way. So how exactly does VR apply to cognitive aging? How can you use it? Well, a few years ago, uh, a very important paper was published by uh, Adam Gazzelli's group out of UCSF, uh, published in Nature magazine, showing that we can use an interactive environment to help train um, people in their 60s and 70s um, improve their executive functions so that they could score in the same range as people in their 20s. So it reversed some aspects of cognitive decline in that uh, these weren't patients. These were, um, you know, volunteers without any diagnostic indication that they had a problem, but it was shown to reverse a age-related cognitive skill decline. So knowing that, knowing that the power of an interactive, engaging environment can exercise and help um, uh, build up that cognitive skill has opened the door for people looking at other interventions that can be supported by, um, you know, the use of virtual environments. And, and we talked earlier about uh, prevention. And one of the best ways to uh, help your brain age well are the things that help your body age well. Exercise, uh, get more sleep, uh, uh, eat correctly. But again, we don't see the consequences of our actions right away. So by leveraging uh, you know, the power of virtual environments to shape behavior, I'm hoping that we can help prevent some of the age-related cognitive decline that, that we all can see. 
I also think it'll be a powerful research tool. And as we come up with new pharmaceutical interventions that might help with this issue, we need better measurement tools in order to see their efficacy. And I believe virtual environments will be a powerful way to do better measurements of changes in cognitive behavior. I must say that I'm still fascinated by all the effects that the virtual environment seems to have when it comes to medical applications. And my surprise comes simply from the fact that when we're talking about the graphic design, the the resolution and everything is still in 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 kind of its early stages. Well, it it yes, and we we've learned that graphic fidelity is not the key to cognitive engagement. Uh, interactivity is, and as we get better at putting our hands and our bodies in virtual environments, we're getting better cognitive in, in engagement. Our, our brain is very good at filling in. And actually, back in the early days of VR, we were able to treat uh, post-traumatic stress disorder from Vietnam veterans who had been suffering from post-traumatic stress for decades. But we built a virtual Vietnam and were able to treat them. But this was back in the 90s. And the graphics were so cr- so crude. But here's what happens is it doesn't take much if you have a learned fear reaction um, from a traumatic experience, it doesn't take much to trigger that cognitive state. Anyone who is afraid of heights, for example, you don't have to go very far up in the elevator to start getting that feeling. We can do a lot with low-resolution graphics. That being said, I should say one of the big problems we have right now uh, with today's VR technology is that it's single-user. We don't have very good multi-user virtual environments where I could meet you in a virtual environment. I can see your body language and your facial expressions. That's a powerful tool to be able to have social VR to help shape behavior, to train people, to motivate people to change their behavior, or to do, uh, for example, we were talking about Alzheimer's, uh, to reduce uh, loneliness by connecting people with each other, uh, senior isolation, or to help with uh, uh, autism and Asperger's by having a social VR environment where you can practice um, interacting with other people in a simple environment and learn uh, how to get ready for a job interview, for example. But the technology is not quite there yet, but it will be. And since you mentioned the technology, um, a uh, augmented reality is kind of, I assume, the next step in virtual reality trainings and, and everything. How much has the research uh, progressed there? How much practical uh, applications do we have of augmented reality in, clinic, in the clinical setting? Well, there's two questions. One is, how has the research progressed? And the other is, uh, what are the applications? And uh, we haven't had uh, easily accessible augmented reality environments until recently. That being said, when you think about it, um, a power of some of the fully immersed virtual environments that we've been using is to block out the outside world so that one can distract someone from a painful procedure or take someone cognitively to another place that can learn a skill. But that's not the only use of virtual environments. Uh, sometimes we want to make use of the uh, real world and overlay it with extra information like we can do in augmented reality. So, for example, if I wanted to do a cognitive assessment of uh, of memory function, for example, or making um, complex decisions, I could overlay the real world with some challenges for someone to do to, to move certain objects or select certain objects in a sequence. And I can come up with a standard assessment that um, we can use at the primary care level using augmented reality technology. We don't have to have things be fully immersive. Uh, 
Another example is we were talking about uh, rehabilitation. Um, in many ways, we don't want to have a fully immersive environment for home rehabilitation. Somebody might trip over the coffee table, but we can use, if we can overlay the real environment with um, extra information, maybe gamify a procedure that you need to do uh, using some of the things in the physical environment, then we can motivate people to do their exercise, maybe have them do it uh, with other people, but even though those people are in other locations. So I think augmented reality technology will actually be very much part of what we're doing here. It just hasn't quite escaped yet. It actually sounds like exposure therapy on steroids. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, what uh, is, in your view, uh, most exciting in terms of the development of clinical applications of virtual reality? Oh, that's like asking me to name my favorite book or my favorite movie. <laughs> you know, you know, in a way, you almost need to narrow it and say, "What's your favorite movie within the uh, within the the science fiction zone or the favorite?" Uh, it's hard to name because they're all they're all so exciting. I, I do think, though, what's going to be revolutionary is having the ability to do better measurements of cognitive function and mood state, that will lead the pathway to better interventions. Uh, right now, so much of what we're doing in psychiatry, psychology, behavioral medicine, wellness and prevention is based on self-report and based on uh, subjective observation. So that means that data is sort of noisy. And if we get good data, then we can use uh, um, uh, d big data analytics and uh, machine learning to come up with improved protocols. But if we have noisy data, that's it's harder. And uh, I think where the revolution will come first is with better education, then better assessments, and then based on the data we get from the better assessments, we'll come up with better interventions. Um, if you push me to choose what area do I think will be have the most impact, I'm going to I'm going to say dealing with some of the endemic problems that we've had that we haven't had great solutions for in the field of mental health, helping with uh, depression, helping with anxiety disorders. Um, those areas, I think, we have long waiting lists. There's a, a stigma behind treating those problems. There are pharmaceuticals that can help, but once you've stabilized with the pharmaceutical, you, you want to still find a way to, to add additional uh, help to people who have these problems. And I think the virtual environments, once we, once we do a little bit more research, can be used as very powerful interventions in the field of mental health care. But that's just the thing when it comes to mental health uh, issues uh, such as uh, depression, anxiety, um, they're often connected to the environment that we, we live in. And, you know, the whole way society is developing with new technologies, how people are losing connections, how we feel more and more lonely. So I guess my skepticism is just uh, to which extent can we... Uh, solve problems where where the root of the problem is not really addressed. You're just treating the symptom and it's not really... Well, not only do you have good questions, you have good observations too. And you're absolutely right. Um, our, our technology has not always served us well in terms of um, reducing isolation. And sometimes the fact that people are just texting instead of talking uh, does create a problem. Um, you know, I'm an optimist, and I think that um, 
the emerging technologies that we're seeing will connect us more. Uh, I think that we can use uh, virtual environments, augmented reality environments to connect with other people throughout the world and uh, either via, you know, it's less isolating in my opinion to have a virtual experience with someone in a, in a distant location than to just talk with them on the telephone or, or be emailing with them or texting. I think in some ways they're a bit of getting back to a more realistic way. However, we're not quite there. We don't. One uh, comment here could be that it's also a generational change, you know, like older generations, which are now looking at uh, teenagers with and how they interact between each other and how they interact um, in general, um, how, how communication looks like it's in the view of the older generations terrible but in the the domain of of younger people that's just the new normal which also means that it doesn't affect their mental health potentially as it does for the older generations you're absolutely right and i certainly did not mean to sound at all um uh critical of the younger generation and but i was trying to be descriptive of the fact that i think that that texting has lower bandwidth than face-to-face interactions. We, it doesn't have all the rich information that a face-to-face encounter can have with facial expressions and tone of voice, etc. If I would refer to your last answer, it would be, it would definitely be um, the observation that the younger generations do have uh, more problems with articulation of what they uh, are trying to communicate because they they talk to uh, emoticons, they talk through stickers. You know, there's no the the literature if you, if there's no reading you can't express yourself with words so the communication is really changing very radically yeah you know i i have to say that i think we don't really know and i don't think it's fair to use any critique in terms of what's better or worse uh i think that it's it's different and the impact on different generations technology has always had a very profound impact on on our our culture and and in many ways cultures are defined by their technology and i i think we you know back in the 1950s when television was starting to come out it was it was argued that it was going to be the great the big educational tool and then it was pretty lame and now you know we're we're arguing that virtual reality will be the 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 breakthrough educational tool and i think it will be um but is there a problem with can it be used to address isolation absolutely uh do we have a problem with isolation right now, especially with our aging seniors that are, you know, confined to their home because they have a mobility issue? Yes. However, I don't think we know all the ramifications of this. And one thing I think uh, is important to discuss is we also don't know the ramifications on the developing brain of spending a lot of time in the virtual environment. Um, you know, uh, our visual system is being affected by wearing head-mounted displays and we don't know what the long-term effects are of wearing a head-mounted display for hours at a time on a youngster. Um, and also there's the issue of, uh, you know, virtual environments are so profoundly believable uh, and young people sometimes have the t- a challenge telling uh, reality from um, their imagination. It's even going to get more blurred with the use of virtual environments. And what are the implications for that? Uh, it's. It, I think we have to really be very cautious about the use of some of this technology. What are cur- the current observations of dangers, apart from those that you already mentioned? 
apart from the fact that we don't know a lot of things. Well, first of all, let me say I'm not worried. Uh, I, I think that we should research and understand some of these things, but uh, I'm I think especially in the medical zone that we're talking about that the power of the technology to do things that are really important and, and worthwhile and, and can't be done addressed otherwise or can only be very expensively addressed otherwise, I think virtual reality is going to be making a big difference. In terms of what are the dangers of this emerging technology uh, beside the effect of affecting the developing visual system and maybe children's issues in terms of uh, understanding the separation between what's real and what's not real. I wish I knew. I wish I knew. It's, um, uh, I'm, I think the motion sickness issues are more or less behind us. I think we've found out how to design and also with less latency systems. I think we've addressed a lot of that. Um, but all right. Well, one concern would be, especially in the medical zone, is is the fact that computer systems can be broken into and hacked. And I think there's a lot of personally identifiable information on someone's use of a virtual environment that even if it isn't tagged as a particular disease state, uh, just the fact that we're collecting data about people's movements and choices and activities in a virtual environment, I think that with proper analysis could be used diagnostically. And that means what we do in a virtual environment can be revealing personally identifiable health information. How do we address that issue? Um, how do we protect um, that and how do we prevent people from inadvertently revealing in a way they may not want to to reveal their health status now this may be going on already with people's you know typing speed on as they type into computer systems or what they're saying in a virtual or in a chat room and things like that uh, but i think as we get more data um in the rich environment of virtual environments, I think it's going to become a bigger issue. So I think protecting health information is going to become more complex as we stand up more virtual environments. Okay, last question. Um, yes, there, there are already existing applications of VR. It's not a new field. So if I were a listener right now, I would be wondering, where can I apply for a VR session to, to uh, control my cravings? Is there such a thing? Yeah, there there are clinics that use virtual reality to treat, uh, um, you know, fear of heights, fear of flying, uh, um, addictions, um, and they're in major cities and and a few in smaller places too. So I, I would just do an online search for virtual reality clinical care and maybe mention the problem that you're that you're concerned about. Um, it's not very common, uh, but it's growing and. I I would be surprised if most major medical centers don't have someone who's doing research and looking at clinical care using virtual environments. Did you try any of the therapies such as for relaxation or anything in your during your research? You know, I have to admit I I really haven't. You know, I mean I've I've looked at them and I but I have I'm not I'm not a very good person for learning to relax and I haven't really felt the need. So, and, you know, I, I, you know, I'm sure that if I, you know, if I get involved in a automobile accident and need to do physical therapy, I'll use a virtual environment for that. And, but I, I personally have not used them, um, uh, therapeutic for myself. Um, 
but I've seen a lot of people use them for distraction from pain, um, uh, learning a cognitive skill. So I, I know they're out there in use, and it's you know it's just beginning, but it'll just get stronger as as time goes by. This was the eleventh episode of Faces of Digital Health. If you're interested in the VR space, tune in the previous episode as well, episode 10 with Dr. Albert Skiprizo. You know, what, what, what I can pay $400 for right now in a head-mounted display would have cost me $20,000 back in 2012. The availability of low-cost equipment has now made it more feasible for this to come into common clinical practice. In total, this is now the 35th episode of this podcast stream, so there's plenty of topics you can dive into. I have four episodes on blockchain, the basics covered in episode 14 of Medicine Today on Digital Health as this podcast was named in 2017. There's misconceptions around blockchain covered in episode 23 of that podcast. Then a panel discussion on blockchain from South by Southwest in episode 7 of Faces of Digital Health and episode 8 is a really interesting journey of a co-founder of a crypto mining company who happens to be a medical anthropologist and epidemiologist. So there's plenty to learn from him about the potentials and already existing uses of blockchain in healthcare. Please take a few moments to rate the podcast and leave a review so other people can find it as well. If you haven't yet, subscribe to the podcast to be informed about the next episode. Stay tuned. <laughs>